Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to talk about a word to the wise. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's start with about verse 15. No telling where we'll end. This will be part one of a message that I will not be able to finish this morning, as you'll see when we get into it. We go down deep, but hopefully we'll get back up. I hope that we'll understand what the Apostle Paul is doing here. I love him. You know, Peter said of Paul, he said, you know, he says some things sometimes over our heads, hard to understand. <laughs> I like that because Peter was a fisherman. What did he know about what Paul was talking about? <clears throat> Thank God we have the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to us today. A word to the wise. One of the things that's skinning me alive as I study in 1 Corinthians is, the fact that all of sin is idolatry. Now that's something, that's a perspective that I'm not so certain in my life I have had clear as it's been presented in 1 Corinthians. All of sin is idolatry. To choose to obey our flesh, and everybody does it from this, this small to as big as, as those sins are, when, when we choose to do that, to attach ourselves to anything other than Christ is an act of idolatry. Remember 1 Corinthians 1, 12, Paul says some of you are of Paul, some of you are of Apollos, and some of you are of Cephas. And then again over in chapter three, he talks about how immature they had become intentionally. And he says, you won't grow up, you won't come out of the nursery. And as a result of that, he says, you're still attached to Paul, you're still attached to Apollos. And so Corinth was the epitome of a church living, chasing after idolatry. They were not embracing Christ, they were not embracing his word, they were embracing the flesh and anything that pampered or made the flesh feel better. Paul has shown the Corinthian believers that it is this sin of idolatry that disqualified Israel. Now we remember that in chapter nine, we come into chapter 10, he mentions Israel as his example. And the disqualifying doesn't mean losing something in the sense of they had already experienced his deliverance, his protection, his presence, his power. But what they did, they missed out on all the blessings that God wanted to give to them. They chose to adulterate their faith. Very skillfully, the Apostle Paul takes four sins of Israel and weaves them together to paint a picture that nobody can miss. In verses seven through 10 of chapter 10, he mentions idolatry in verse seven. He goes and gives an Old Testament reference. We've already looked at this. This is simply in review. <clears throat> How Israel chose to adulterate their faith. You see, that was in verse eight, immorality. Immorality was certainly involved in a physical sexual sense, but that's not really the meaning here. The meaning is more of spiritual immorality. When you or, or I choose to embrace our flesh rather than embrace Christ, 
what happens is we have adulterated our faith. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. That'll make you go home and think about sin in a way that perhaps you hadn't thought about it before. We adulterate. We prostitute our faith because we're no longer trusting God. We have put our trust into our own flesh. That is a spiritual act of immorality. And of course, in Israel, it did involve the physical, but the spiritual is what he's talking about. And then he mentions tempting God in verse nine. The word tempt, birazo, has the idea of putting something to the test in order to tear the character down, <clears throat> to disprove them. In other words, the lifestyle of, of Israel, by flirting with idolatry and by adulterating their faith, tore down any witness that God was the one true God. They eroded people's idea of who God was to Israel. <clears throat> and then finally, in verse 10, he mentions murmuring. That's an interesting thing here. They murmured against the very leadership God had appointed over them. They complained because you see what they were reflecting was since they couldn't trust God, they certainly could not trust the leaders God had appointed. An interesting way in which Paul brings that to the surface. He tells them in verse 13 that there's never an excuse to fold in the midst of a trial. A trial, listen, a trial is any situation to whether you and I have to make a choice between obeying our flesh and obeying Christ. To obey flesh is to embrace an idolatrous act and to adulterate our faith. To embrace Christ, of course, is what produces righteousness in our life. <clears throat> and Paul says there's always a way of escape. And it's so that God, God will give you the ability to bear up under whatever pressure is on you. So there's no circumstance that will ever come your way forcing you to make a decision that God does not give you the grace and the enablement to bear up under it. And the escape is not from the problem. The escape is from our inability into his ability. Then he says in verse 14, as we review, therefore my beloved, flee from idolatry. And the word flee means to avoid it at all costs. Whatever you do, avoid letting the flesh rule in your life. This will disqualify you. This will take you out of the race. This will cause you to be benched and you'll watch others be used when you yourself are not gonna be in the game. Well, <clears throat> avoid it at all costs. Again, to attach yourself to anything other than God is the sin of idolatry. And it's amazing how many people cannot see this. I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you attached to? What are you attached to this morning? You're attached to a church? Are you attached to a job? Are you attached to a family, a, a mate, or whatever? Diane and I were on the beach one time. You know, I don't like to <coughs> talk about me being on the beach because some people think that Shamu the whale had showed up, but we were on vacation walking down the beach and here comes this lady, she's got earphones on and she's singing to the top of her lungs a Sandy Patty song back in the days when, when she was kind of in the limelight. And obviously, Dinah, well, Dinah just meets strangers like I don't. I just enjoy being around strangers and being quiet and just minding my own business. Dinah meets every person that walks that we don't know. She walked right up to her and she said, you're a Christian. <laughs> now how would she know that? You know, she's just singing a Christian song here. And the girl said, yes, I am. And for 45 minutes, she stood there on the beach and told us about her church. And not one time did she mention Jesus. What is it you're attached to this morning? You can be attached to a church. You can be attached to a lot of good things. But if we're not attached to Christ, then whatever else it is, it's something, a whim of the flesh. And that is what idolatry is all about. It's amazing how subtle this is. Many times people are not finding their joy in Jesus. They're finding their joy in something else. Now, Paul's gonna speak 
to the seriousness of idolatry. Now you remember the context. Started in chapter eight, verse one. All of this, all the way to chapter 10, where we are now, has dealt with uh, people eating meat sacrificed to idols. And it's very significant that we pay attention to context when we get into these passages. He's gonna deal with it again now. He's gonna bring it back to the surface and he's gonna show us how, how, how bad it is to ever embrace the flesh. Look at verse 15 of chapter 10. He says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Now a better translation of that is I speak assuming you to be sensible. Because the word wise is not the normal word for wise men. It's the word phronimos. Phronimos means people that are sensible in the sense that they can hear what you say, they can make a choice based on what you said, and they can be totally affected by the truth that you're giving to them. So he says, I speak to you as if you're sensible. And then he tells them to do something. He says, in the last part of verse 15, you judge what I say. In other words, you take what I say, you pull it into your life and make some concrete decisions that will radically affect your witness to other people. I've got something to say, he says. And then he begins to explore what he's about to bring out. And there's only two things we'll be able to see this morning. I'm sorry, but we'll never finish this message and you'll see why in a minute. We're gonna go deep. You pray that we'll get back up. (laughs) Because Paul is doing something. He's gonna mention as examples in the first point. He's gonna mention the Lord's Supper as an example. And remember, an example. He's gonna mention Israel and the partaking of the sacrifices to the altars as an example. And then he's gonna use those two examples to point to eating meat sacrificed with idols. And for a, for a few minutes in the, in the message, you're gonna think, Wayne, where in the world are you going? Well, I promise you, Paul knew where he was going and I think I know where Paul was going. So if you'll stay with me, we will get somewhere. So don't go to sleep, don't fall out of your chair. We're gonna do a little spade work here. But if you'll pay attention to what we're saying, it's gonna make the point just crystal clear to you in just a moment. It'll take a few minutes to do it. First of all, Paul tells them that eating meat sacrificed to idols denounces God in a person's life. Now, the whole reason he's dealing with this is of how careful we need to be by presenting to others the image that we worship anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you pointing in your life? Are there any questions about who you love in your life as far as your relationship with God? See, Paul wants to make sure that our witness is crystal clear, that the witness of the Corinthians is clear. Obviously, it's upside down. He's trying to put them right side up. He's going to use the illustration of the Lord's Supper to start off with. This is not a definition. This is not an exposition. But it's just simply an illustration of, of the Lord's Supper and how it's going to fit in what he's about to say. Verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. Now, the cup of blessing to the Jewish person would be the last cup drunk after a meal had been partaken of. And it was then that a prayer of thanksgiving would be offered. But also the cup of blessing was the proper name for the third cup that the Lord Jesus partook of the night before he was crucified. It came to be known as the the cup of blessing. It was the last supper that he had with his disciples. You might want to turn to Matthew 26 and verse 27. Remembering that at the end of the meal, the last cup was drunk and then a prayer of thanksgiving was offered. Well, this particular cup that we're speaking of here is that cup 
that the Lord Jesus took at the end of that meal and blessed. And it was very important to see the significance. Matthew 26 and verse 27. It says in verse 27 of Matthew 26, and when he had taken a cup or the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. He took the cup and gave thanks and then said, drink from it, all of you. That's the cup that we're talking about here. Again, it's recorded in Mark 14, 23. Again, in Luke 22 and verse 17. You might want to write those other two passages down, but they're the same verse, just recounted in the other two gospels. This cup of blessing came to be known in the Christian church as the Holy Eucharist. How many of you ever heard of the Eucharist? Never wondered what, the, that's it. It became known as the Holy Eucharist. The verb for giving thanks in the passage that we just read and then also cited in the other two gospels is the word ephkaristel. It's the word that comes from eph, which means good or well, and then the word grace, good grace. It has the idea of giving thanks now for the grace that God has given to us. This grace that comes from God and, and completely changes the heart and the life of an individual. Now here's where you begin to realize that when you partake of the Christ, a cup of blessing, you have to be a believer. It makes no sense to the world to partake of the cup of blessing because it's the cup of blessing by which we give thanks for the grace that we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It became known as the Lord's Supper. It was and is an institution of thanksgiving. It was and is the celebration of the death and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism pictures his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But the Lord's Supper points to his death. It points to the, the price, the suffering that he paid for you and I. The term blessing in the, in the little phrase, cup of blessing, is the word eflogia. It comes from eflogeo, which means to speak well of. In other words, to give thanks, as in giving thanksgiving. We get the word eulogy from it. You know, sometimes you go to a funeral, somebody gives a eulogy of somebody. That's, that's where the word comes from. When the cup of blessing was taken by the believer, the one holding that cup with the wine or the juice in it, he would hold it there and would be overwhelmed in the remembrance of what Jesus Christ had done for him. He'd be overwhelmed that God would so love the world that he would send his only son into this world to die for us so that the, the, whosoever believed would not perish. He'd be overwhelmed with it. And that gratitude, that overwhelming awe that he would have by holding that cup and remembering what it represented, what it symbolized, would emanate into a prayer of thanksgiving. Hopefully when we have the Lord's Supper, that's what each of us goes through. That's what, that's what we set it up for, but you cannot determine how an individual either thanks or gives gratitude or what he does when he receives that cup. But that's the idea, a remembrance. It's a very significant thing. Paul says in verse 16, it's not the cup of blessing which we bless. You see, that's the whole idea is that we, the word bless saying good things. We, we, we want to be thankful. We want to say great things and wonderful things about Christ who shed his blood for us. He says, does he not share in his blood? Now the term for sharing has got to be understood because he's gonna come back to this three times. The term sharing is the word koinonia. It has several ideas. It means to have in common with somebody else. It means to participate in. It means to have partnership with others. Same word used in 1 Corinthians 1, 9. When it talks about we're called into fellowship with his son. It says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
It's the same word used when we participate in the fellowship of his suffering. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.10? It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. It's the same word used in 2 Corinthians 8.4 to speak of the support that the people gave toward the saints. Whenever you give, you participate in something. It says begging us with much entreaty speaking of the church in Macedonia, for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You see, when you're properly sharing in the cup of blessing, we spiritually identify not only with Christ, but with one another. And there's also a participating together. You see, this is one of the ways that you know believers. They, they, they partake of the cup of blessing. They have the Lord's Supper. They come together. And this identifies us as people who have been blood-bought that are grateful for the work of grace that God has done in our life. All of it's due to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. It's more than just a symbol, but it's a profound celebration. It's a profound communion, a sharing. It's a spiritual experience when Christians partake of the cup of blessing. Now, in no way does it mean to literally partake, and that is important to the context. It does not mean literally to partake. This is the doctrine of transubstantiation and consubstantiation. That's the Roman Catholic Church. And they say that when you partake of communion, you partake of the wine, you literally partake of the actual blood of Christ as if he's being crucified all over again. They say when you partake of the bread, you literally partake of the body of Christ. But in no way can this be true. You say, how do you know that, Wayne? Because when Jesus blessed the cup on the night before his crucifixion, he had not yet shed his blood. But he blessed the cup. And the cup became a memorial, a symbol of his death and of his crucifixion that was impending upon him. So how could it become the blood of Christ when it was never meant to, to be the literal blood of Christ, but symbolic of what he was about to do. The best illustration I think I can give to you is, you know, Diana and I are kind of going through withdrawal right now. Stephanie and Eric and Holland have moved to Florida. Ugh. And we so miss them, but we miss the little granddaughter, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> as much as we miss the, the mom and daddy. But I guarantee you, you could give me a picture right now in Diana of Stephanie and Eric and Holland, and we could hold it up, and Diana and I could stand together. That picture is not them but it represents them. And as we look at that picture, it binds us together. As we both look at that picture, it floods us with emotion. As we look at that picture, we are filled with the reality of knowing them as our daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter. That's what the Lord's Supper is. In no way does it mean to literally share in the blood. You've already shared in that when you were saved. You were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so by sharing in, he has the idea of identifying with. He has the idea of the fellowship, the commonality of believers when they partake of the cup of blessing. That's the meaning. And it also holds true for the rest of the verse. He says in the last part of verse 16, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. The breaking of bread is, of course, the act performed during communion. There was one loaf. And of course, all members partake of that one loaf. The bread is the picture of Christ's body, a body that was made up of real flesh and real blood. He lived on this earth as a God-man. We celebrate his death and the shedding of his blood when we partake of the bread and when we partake of the cup. 
Some people say the shedding of the blood is just symbolic. Well, now wait a minute. It was the shedding of the blood that satisfied the justice of God. It was the dying of the body that satisfied the love of God. And so when we take this ordinance, when we come together, we identify ourselves to the world. We are believers. We're giving thanks to God for because of his grace, he has completely saved us. And we want to give our thanksgiving unto him. We celebrate the cup. We celebrate the bread. Now this is important and very germane to what Paul is about to say. As Christians, we partake of this Lord's Supper. Paul was not crucified for us, so we're not attached to him, as he said in chapter one. Jesus was crucified to us, we're attached to him. And when we celebrate, this forms a bond, this binds us together, for we're one. Look what he says in verse 17, speaking of that unity. He says, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. In other words, all believers stand on the same ground. There's only one loaf, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must partake of him. And all of us are unified in that fact. You know, there's no big eyes or little U's in the family of God. Now, sometimes people have more gifts than others and privileges, etc. But I'm talking about all of us came in the same way. We came in by grace. Not deserving anything that God did. We came in on the same. The ground is level at the cross. And there's unity in that fact. All of us came in one way, that was by partaking of the bread, which was the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that just simply strengthens that bond. When we partake of the blood, every one of us in here were saved and cleansed by that blood. When we partake of the bread, every one of us in here were affected by the giving of the body of Christ upon that cross. Our sins were put upon him on the cross. Now, Paul continues to clear up what he's saying. What is he doing here? Christians celebrate Christ. They celebrate him by the Passover, by the cup, and they celebrate him by the bread. They're unified together. They're identified together. They point a specific direction. Everything they do points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 18. He changes gears. This pushes the clutch in, shifts gear to another gear. He said, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? You see, he talks about Christians sharing in the blood, sharing in the body. Now he shifts gears and goes to Israel, sharing in the sacrifices of the altar. He says, look at the nation of Israel. Now, literally, that should be translated, behold, Israel after the flesh. Paul refers to the physical descendants of Israel, the physical nation of Israel. He does not speak to the spiritual descendants, and I'll tell you why. In Romans 9, 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, he says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, spiritual Israel would never be partaking of the sacrifices given to the altar. They would be with the Christians over here partaking of the cup of blessing and of the, of the, of the bread, which would signify their thanksgiving for what Christ had done in their life. But here's his point. When the Israelites sacrificed an animal to the Lord, the animal or the sacrifice was divided in three ways. First of all was the sacrifice itself. Secondly, there was a portion given to the priest. Thirdly, the one doing the sacrificing and bringing the animal would partake of the very animal that had been sacrificed. When the physical descendant of Israel, and understand what I'm saying here, ate of the sacrifice, he was confirming his descent. In this way, he expressed agreement with the whole system. He was saying, I'm a descendant of Israel. He says, I'm confirming the whole system. This like the partaking of the Lord's Supper 
was a symbolic act of acceptance of the traditional meaning of the altar in the temple. And this is what Paul is doing here. He says an Israelite who's never been saved will go to the altar, he'll take his sacrifice, and when he partakes of that sacrifice, he identifies himself with Israel. He, he partakes with other Israelites. He partakes of that sacrifice. And so there's a oneness and a bond of all those Israelites. There is an identification you are of Israel. There's an identification to the people who take the Lord's Supper. You are of Christ. Two distinct different groups here. Both identified, both when they partake are in fellowship with others of like mind. Now what in the world is he doing here? His teaching is that the partaking of the Lord's Supper never makes one a Christian, but one partakes because he is a Christian. The partaking of the sacrifice of the altar never makes one a Jew, but a Jew will go and partake of that sacrifice. Why? To identify himself and to fellowship with the nation of Israel who also likewise does the same things. In both illustrations of the Lord's Supper, the illustration of the sacrifices offered by Israel, two things are there. One is identification with others of like mind. Two, a participation with them and a sharing in that observance that, they, that took place. Now where's Paul going with all this? Look at verse 19. He says, what do I mean then? By the way, when I was studying, I'm thinking, thank you, Paul. I'm kind of wondering myself. He says, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And the first word of the next verse is, no, that's not what I'm saying. In other words, first thing he wants them to know is that meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. It's nothing. We're in Christ. Romans 8, 1 says, there's absolutely no condemnation. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Meat sacrificed, and he's already covered this back in chapter eight. And then the second thing he wants them to know is, is an idol anything? No, we know that there's only one true God. And you can hear somebody stand up in the back and say, well, Paul, why do you go to all this trouble talking about Christians observing the Lord's Supper and Israel observing the sacrifices if eating meat sacrificed to idols means nothing and if the idol means nothing? And here comes his answer. You see, it's a very serious matter to step outside the bounds of attaching yourselves to Christ. You send a signal that's the wrong signal to the rest of the world. Paul wants them to know that the idol that is sacrificed to is nothing. And the, the, the sacrifice is nothing. But there's something more serious. Look in verse 20. No, he says, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become a uh, sharers in demons. Here's why it's such a serious matter. You see, he, he's speaking to the knowledgeable. He's speaking to the, ar the arrogant people as he talked about in chapter eight. They understood grace. They had no love mixed with their understanding. So therefore they, they just flaunted their liberty over everybody and broke their brother. And what he's saying to him is, hey guys, you, you might be in standing with God. That's right. It didn't hurt your standing with God at all. You're in Christ Jesus. But there's a much more serious matter that you didn't look at. You were eating meat that was sacrificed to a demon. And, and God says, I don't want you identified with or participating with those who, who do these kinds of things. You see, demons here are in the plural. Every time you find them in the, in the New Testament epistles, they're always in the plural, not in the singular, as they are sometimes in the Gospels. Only in the plural, which means you cannot identify them. And they're plural in number. It's amazing to me how many people go to great expense trying to identify a singular demon when in the epistles they are never in the singular. They're always in the plural. 
They're just simply unidentifiable demon spirits. But let me show you what happens. When you worship an idol, when a person worships an idol, he is literally worshiping a demon. Go over to Acts chapter 17, verse 22. Acts 17, Paul was in Athens. And this is a very important verse to understand. Acts 17 and verse 22, better translated uh, in the King James than it is in the New American Standard. Acts 17 and verse 22. Paul's over in Athens. He's waiting on his buddies to come over and he's bored to tears. And he looks around and sees all these false gods and he cannot keep his mouth shut. Paul was like Peter in a way. Every time he opened his mouth, he, he put his foot in it and he just has to take them all on. And look what he says in verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, and we've been there, Rick and I stood right there. Men of Athens, I oppose, or observe rather, that you are very religious in all respects. Now that word religious is not a good translation. The word comes from two words. It's a great big old long word and I'm not even gonna try to pronounce it. The first part of the word is the word vivo and it means to fear. The second part of the word is the word for demon, to fear demons. Now it was translated superstitious in the King James Version, which is a good translation. They so feared the little g gods and the demonic of that day that they went to great expense and got over into superstition. You realize some people can fear our God in an unjust way and as a result of that end up in superstition. It's the same idea. The Athenians were fearful of the demonic and in order to pacify the evil spirits, they built altars to worship them. And Paul is saying, even though there's an idol sitting there, they're literally worshiping demons. He's showing how the fact that to eat meat sacrificed to idols is to identify yourself with and to participate with, to share in those who worship the very things that are opposed to anything that God represents. So Paul says in verse 20, no, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. And that's interesting, sharers in demons. How can some people say sharers in demons mean literal when the other two illustrations did not? You have to take it in the context that it's in. He means in the very same way Israel shared in with other Israelites and partook with as they took the sacrifices the same way that when a person takes the Lord's Supper, they share in something together, but it's symbolic. And here again is the symbolism. He said, what you're doing, you're making your identity with those who serve the very things that are opposed to God. It is not a literal sharing, but a sharing nonetheless. You see, when a believer takes the Lord's Supper, he sends a message. And his message is, I'm under grace, I'm overwhelmed by grace, I'm amazed at the love that Christ showed to me by the shedding of his blood as I take the cup of blessing, by the giving of his life as I partake of the bread. I'm overwhelmed, I'm attached to him, and my identity and my focus is Christ all of my life. And when you point in one way, your, your message is clear. But you see, when, when you go and eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul would be saying to the Corinthian church, you're sending a mixed signal. You're participating and identifying with people who worship demons. And there's no way that you can do that. You end up participating in their evil deeds. In, in 2 John chapter 1 and verse 10, here's what it says. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. And it's talking about the gospel message. Isn't it amazing how many times we do that though without realizing it? In verse 11, 
For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And that's the same exact thing Paul is saying. He went all the way around the block to come to the simplicity of the statement, you cannot do this because you're sending a mixed signal. You're ruining your witness. You're causing the unbeliever to be confused and you're causing the weaker brother to be confused as to who is the focus of your life. If you're gonna line up with people who worship demons, how can you at the same time worship the Lord Jesus? In fact, it's an impossibility. Look at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That word cannot is the word ooh. Ooh means absolutely in no way, shape, or form. You cannot do it. It's kind of like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter six. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. In other words, you cannot continue to do this over here and confuse your message because over here is your identity loving Christ and being overwhelmed by the grace that he's shown to you. He said, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, the table of demons. What happens is, is what he's telling them, and it's still the same context is, if you partake of meat sacrificed to idols, you're denouncing God in your life. Now he's gonna go on later on to say, if you're aware, that that meat has been sacrificed to idols. There were times when it wasn't, and he's gonna cover that ground, but I will not cover it in this message. You ever tried to mix oil with water? Is that fun? <laughs> you know what happens when you try to mix oil and water? They don't mix. And what Paul is saying, and I think to me is the clearest message for all of us this morning to take it home with us, is to make sure your direction is in a way that's clear that people know who you are and who you're identified with, who you're grateful to and who you serve. If you try to flirt with idolatry, and in this case, eating meat sacrificed to idols, but in taking that as application, in any area of the flesh, what happens is you confuse others and you have announced that you don't trust Christ, that you have embraced your own flesh, and that sends a signal that kills the witness that you could have had. So eating meat sacrificed to idols denounces God in one's life. But the second thing Paul brings out is that eating meat sacrificed to idols provokes God to anger. <laughs> you know, sometimes we just do stupid things. Now, dumb things when you don't know any better. Stupid is when you know better, but you do it anyway. That's my definition of stupid. I don't do dumb things. I do stupid things. Why in the world would we agreeably provoke God to anger? I mean, I don't understand why we do that. Hebrews chapter 12 says in verse six, he chastens, he disciplines, and what does he also do to those he loves? Scourges, you know what scourge means? It means beats a, beats a hide clean off. <laughs> He'll take you right down to the very end. Now why would I invoke that upon myself? If I embrace my flesh, in this case, eating meat sacrificed to idol, what I have just done is to put my hands into the hands of a living God and provoke him to anger because he is gonna chasten me, he is gonna discipline me, and he is gonna scourge me. Well, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 10. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he, are we? The word provoke there, parazello. Para means uh, in the idea of to the point of, zello is the desire to be zealous, is to make one jealous, to pro provoke unto jealousy. Now, idolatry provokes the Lord to a jealous anger. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 17. Let's look at Israel just for a second. Let's look at Israel. 
Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 17. It's exactly what Israel did. It's what the Corinthians were doing and it's what we're, none of us are supposed to do. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. It's a very good verse to remember that God's people can do this kind of thing. When you embrace flesh, you've just embraced idolatry. Deuteronomy 32, 17. It says they, were, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to little g-gods whom they have not known, new little g-gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So here is the same picture of what Israel did. And then in verse 21 of chapter 32, just go down four verses. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. God said, hey, you're gonna provoke me, buddy. I'll turn right around and provoke you. And he would raise up a pagan nation and just bring them to the very point of crying out to God. He said, all right, do you understand now? I'm the only one you're to serve. You're never to serve your flesh. First Kings 14, verse 22 says, and Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord and they provoked him to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. Now here's the point. When we associate with anything other than Christ, this is idolatry. That idolatry denounces God in our life, kills our testimony, and provokes God to anger. He says in the last part of verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 10, we are not stronger than he, are we? And that word strong is the word iskis. Iskis means inherent strength. The kind of strength is where you can do whatever you want to do because you're who you are. And the arrogance and the insolent attitude of somebody who says, I know God what you want me to do, but I will not do it because I can do what I want to do. An excuse person is a person who's inherently strong and inherently has the right to do as he pleases because he's been proven to be who he is. So in other words, this person says, I've got the right to do whatever I want to do. Man, I tell you, I wish I could point a finger at somebody this morning, but it would come right back between my eyes. How many times I've done that in my life. Just, I mean, just out of pure arrogance. And I knew what God wanted me to do. And I chose rather to embrace my flesh. I chose to adulterate my faith. I chose to completely ruin my testimony with people, unbelievers, and even believers that are weaker in the faith who are watching me. Let me ask you a question. Since I'm being honest this morning, how many of us in here have done the same thing in our life? Anybody besides me? <laughs> Those that didn't raise your hand could get saved before the end of the message. That'd be all right. <laughs> we all have done it, haven't we? And that's what sin is. Now, folks, listen to me. We're talking about eat meat sacrificed to idols. I mean, I don't think that's going to be a problem to most of us before the week's out. That was a problem to the Corinthians. But let me ask you a question. What sin is of a problem to you? What is it that you so are, are quickly defeated by? How quickly you'll embrace the flesh and how quickly you embrace idolatry. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. You can't associate here and expect to associate over here. You can't do it. You're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. And idolatry is the same thing as immorality, the same thing as tempting God. It's the same thing as showing that you don't trust who he is. Well, verse 23, he says this to the insolent, arrogant person. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. He uses two words here that are key to understanding that verse. First of all, it's profitable. And that means to benefit other people in a spiritual way. 
The word edify means to build others up in the faith. But here's his point. He says all things are lawful. He doesn't mean it's lawful to go out and shoot somebody. The word lawful means in, in, in accordance to and related to your eternal security. There's nothing that can affect our stance in the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore all things are lawful. After a person becomes a believer, whatever he does, that can in no way jeopardize his position in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard people tell me, oh, no, Brother Wayne, I knew a Christian. He committed suicide and he, he went straight into hell. No, he didn't. If he was saved, he is saved, not because of what he did or didn't do. He saved it because of who Christ is. And so therefore, in Christ, you are secure. Some people don't believe in that. And I'll tell you what, you're gonna have to cut a lot of verses out of your Bible. You'll truly have a holy Bible when you cut out all the assurance verses that are there. But what does happen here, listen, is when you do whatever you do, he says, you can go out and eat meat sacrificed to idols. You, listen, let's just let's take meat sacrificed to idols out of the picture. Let's get into another gray area. You can go out and have a drink. You can be saved and go out and have a drink. Help yourself, man. All things are lawful. But I want to tell you something. Not everything is profitable to your brother. And not everything builds your brother up. And you're sending a signal to that weaker brother and to the unbeliever that you do not love God because all of his association with that is evil. And that's what Paul's saying. That's what he's been saying since chapter eight. He says, come on, man, quit defending your rights under grace. It's all privileges and be willing to lay them down for the sake of a weaker brother, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've had people back me up against the wall in those gray areas. It's not... Smoking won't make me go to hell with it. <laughs> no, it'll just make you smell like you've been there. It'll really bless your reputation to other people around you. But there are people who will, who will stand to the death to defend their right to do what they know cannot affect their standing in Christ. And that's the whole point Paul's been trying to make. That kind of attitude is the arrogant, insolent attitude of a person who says, I'm stronger than God. Excuse, I can do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And Paul says, okay, buddy, everything you do certainly is lawful. You got that down, but it's not profitable to your brother and it's not building him up. In fact, he would categorize it as an act of idolatry because if it offends the brother, it's gotta be a fleshly move. It's what God does that unifies and builds him up. Well, verse 24, let no one, no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. The word good is not in there, but it's implied what he says is, don't ever seek for yourself. Don't live your life for yourself. Live your life for Christ and for the sake of others. And whatever's gonna cost you to stop doing what you know is offending a brother, be willing to stop doing it. If you don't, you embrace flesh. That's idolatry and you send a mixed signal to the world as to who your loyalty and your love is really for. The word seek, zetio, it's present tense and has the idea of seeking with a zealousness and an earnestness. Don't live a lifestyle seeking things for yourself. Seek after the other's good. By the way, the, for another, the word for another is heteros. It means another of a different kind. It's one thing for me to seek after the good of Brother Haywood because he loves me and, and Tim and the staff and Mike Trussell over there and Chuck. I mean, the people that I can look out and see. It's easy for me to seek things for your good because you're like me and you do like me, most of you. <laughs> and that's easy, but it becomes tough when it's somebody who's not like you. They're not a believer and they're either weaker in the faith and they don't understand where you are. Therefore, you've got to watch what you do because in, in, in any way, if you confuse your witness to them, that's what flesh does. 
It's an embracing a daughter. You've identified yourself with those who do not love God. That's been his whole point all along. Well, I got to stop because our time's out. Well, there's so much more in this. We're going to pick this up. Don't forget, I'm not through with it yet. He's going to qualify it as we continue to go. I can hear somebody sitting out there and saying, Wayne, <laughs> you don't know where I am, so get off my back. I can just hear you saying that. You don't know how tough it's been for me lately. And if I've done some wrong things, I'm justified. Well, now, wait a minute. I don't know where you are, but I guarantee you, you don't know where I am either. <laughs> so let's both of us get off that little trip of defending ourselves. And I want to share with you something. As we go back to verse 13, remember, there's always a way of escape, no matter how difficult it is. Uh, I'm going through some things right now, my wife and I. I'll tell you what, our whole thought has been protect our testimony, protect our testimony, protect our testimony. But there have been times I wanted to embrace the flesh and unprotect somebody else's testimony. I mean, I've wanted to do some things, but I haven't yet, and neither has Diana so far. I think she's madder than I am. No. But we've, we've both been walking through this together. But I tell you what we're learning, when you don't know what else to do and you realize you're being pushed to the max, don't you dare embrace the flesh. You just embrace Christ like you've never embraced him before. And if nothing else, cling to him. And if you don't know what else to do, still cling to him and he'll carry you right through it and he'll keep your testimony clear. But it's when we get under the temptation that the trial, as he talked about earlier, and we get under the pressure that's when we tend to flirt with the flesh. That's idolatry. And that's when the testimony falls apart. And that's what he's been trying to say. Make sure your testimony is clear all the way through. Dinah was down in Florida. I'm through. Dinah was down in Florida and she was helping Stephanie fix her little house. And Holland was like a wart on her body. Just, Dinah said she just hung on to me. Of course, Dinah loved every minute of that. And you know, Florida has weird weather. We've all been having weird weather, but Florida always has weird weather. There can be a cloud the size of the end of your finger and it can strike somebody with lightning on a golf course. I mean, it's a weird place. A thunderstorms come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, somehow, they didn't even realize it was dark outside. Thunder roared. I mean, it was a clap of thunder that Dinah said even shook her, shook the house. And little Holland had never heard anything like that before in her life. And she screamed as Dinah's never heard her scream. And Dinah turned to her and Holland didn't know what else to do and just leaped into Dinah's arms. And Dinah held her and held her as tight as she could hold her while she just sobbed, she was scared so bad. But after a while, she began to subside and finally she knew she was in the arms of somebody that would make it all right. That's what you do when you're going through a trial, folks, and you don't know what else to do. You've exhausted everything else. Every emotion is shot. Just cling to him like never before. Dinah said little Holland liked to choke her to death holding on to her, scared to death, but in the arms of somebody who is inherently strong that could protect her. And that's the way we walk through life. There's never a trial that justifies embracing flesh, never. The point, this narrow context, eating meat sacrificed out of, but you can broaden that thing to as many applications as you wanna make. Anything that you wanna embrace instead of Christ is idolatry. And Paul says, when you do that, you send mixed signals, you have no more testimony. You've denounced God and you've provoked him unto anger. For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 